0: My guest today is Aaron Griffith. He is assistant professor of modern American history at Whitworth University. And our subject today is God's Law and Order. Aaron's uh, recently published book with Harvard University Press on the subject of, well, yeah, I guess that's where we'll start. So broadly it has to do with um, the criminal legal system and the reform thereof. And I actually expected going in, to uh, you know until I picked up the book and started reading, I expected the book to sort of just offer say normative arguments from the Christian theological perspective for criminal legal reform and I was uh, pleasantly surprised and sort of uh, astonished to see that what he's done here is is uh, not only provided a bit of that but also lay out the history of sort of uh, Christian involvement in cr- yeah. producing the problems that a lot of people are now recognizing need to be reformed. Um, so, so maybe Aaron, can we start yeah. there?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast, Scott. And uh, it's so, so good to be here. Um, yeah, this is an interesting um, question for me just because the book is a, a history, like it's a, it's a book, a work of American religious history where I walk through uh, the influence of modern American evangelical Christians um, both on the criminal justice system in various ways, but also the ways that modern evangelical culture, uh, theology was shaped by concerns um, of crime and punishment throughout the 20th century, especially from... Uh, the basically 1949 um, on up to the present, but uh, even though the work is very much a work of of history, and I teach in a history department here at uh, Whitworth, and that's my methodological commitments. Uh, the the book started as a dissertation, and that started as uh, as many dissertations do with very normative, um, even theological concerns about wondering about prisons. Um, And I initially had thought when I was thinking about going to graduate school and maybe writing a dissertation someday uh, that I wanted to write a work of theological ethics or um, something along those lines. And I had been reading books uh, in that vein when I was just starting my, my graduate school Uh, my master's uh, degree. um, Books like The Executed God by Mark Lewis Taylor. Um, And I had seen some really interesting work done on in theological ethics about the criminal justice system, about the death penalty. And I think there's still tons of work uh, to be done on those questions, even though a lot of amazing work has has been done already. People like James Logan, I would want to mention him as well, um, were were real big inspirations for me early on. But I started thinking about like, what, what does, how can history shape these more normative conversations how can uh, American religious history attention to American political history inform our contemporary moral political theological discourse uh, about these problems of mass incarceration um retributive uh, sentiment in our in our culture and uh, I felt like history was also just for me <laughs> what I was better at and more interested in and so I uh, started to pursue graduate work in American religious history, and that that 's where the book um, as a dissertation really took off. but that initial spark uh, i 'm glad you you perhaps were aware of that um, going in or, or cognizant of that possibility because that was for me um, very much the possibility and and sort of the driving force uh, early on that this this is something that matters not only academically to me, although it absolutely does, I think intellectually it's fascinating stuff, but it matters because these are people's bodies we're talking about. These are people who have been incarcerated, people that our society has deemed worthy um, of punishment. Um, And so we need to reflect on that. We need to reflect on that in a very serious uh,
0: way. So, okay, So, so the premise of this podcast is to have conversations with people that I find interesting. (laughs) um a a, um uh a sort of one of the uh, selfish motive that i have beyond just you know wanting to have interesting conversations is that um often i i talk with folks whose work is sort of in spaces adjacent to my training and Mm. um my own sort of research agenda Mm. and so given the the sort of biography that you just laid out there I'm 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 hoping that you know you could help me with think through some things um sure. so, so, so I've been doing some work in like normative political philosophy um and um what I'm coming to realize uh after uh, you know in the course of my research and having conversations with people like uh Kristen Dume and Beth Allison Barr yeah Sheila Gregoire, uh, you know, um, is that you, it's not as though you can just say like, Hey, here's what scripture says. Here's what the Christian theological mm. tradition broadly construed sit like, here are some core principles. Right. And, uh, all right, folks, let's just do it <laughs> because as much mm. as philosophers might like the world to be that way. Right. Um, it it's really yeah. impossible to untangle a lot of these things without getting into history ideology the way that language functions to obscure the truth right yeah uh le- uh legitimizing myths that we tell ourselves to justify the social hierarchy um maybe maybe and this this jumped off the page to me uh when i yeah. was reading uh what you had to say about theological defenses of various mm. Uh, punitive practices so yeah just just yeah. talk go into lecture mode that's yeah that's fine. That's what you do.
1: great yeah i mean i think i'm I'm so glad you mentioned uh beth allison Barr and kristen dumay and, and the work of others in that vein um who are historians uh but interested in these questions that matter so much for our, our present moment um not just simply for you know the trump moment or whatever but for uh understanding what underlies so much of, of American religious practice today and American politics and, and the, the things that sometimes we just chalk up to timeless uh, timeless truths, either because we like them or because we don't. Uh, that, that It's always been this way. And I think that that is a lot of what I wanted to do in the book was look at um, those assumptions that American Christians often carried that, oh, this is how it has to be, or this is how it always has been, or this is what is just self-evidently biblical. Um, and the institution of the prison is itself a perfect example of that because prisons to us, and this is not just a discussion for American Christians. This is, I think, for Americans more generally. Um, but the prison itself to many um, seems just totally natural and normal a part of our a part of our society it's not something we want to live near necessarily or or have anything to do with but it just seems like this is just where we send the quote bad people um but prisons themselves are contingent and they appear at a particular place and time they emerge um in the late 18th early 19th century uh and as reform projects as projects of religious reform in in no small part. And um, they largely failed in sort of their humanitarian impulses of trying to move away from more punitive, retributive practices of just beating, putting people in the stocks, you know, hangings. Um, But the prison itself has a history. It is not this timeless institution um, that perhaps we've, we've thought of it. Um, punishment practices, conceptions of uh, what we do with violations in our society change all the time. Um, and that's, I think, just a good way into the problems that many evangelical Christians, who I focus most of the book on, um, were wrestling with. Um, You know, wanting to look into the Bible and find a clear blueprint for what one should do with uh, someone who's committed a crime, um, a serious crime, even. And there's the Bible becomes this battleground between evangelicals and liberal Protestants and African-American Christians and uh, non-Christians, even where evangelicals look at these passages from Scripture, whether it's Romans 13 or um, the eye for an eye passages from Exodus. And they're like, oh, well, this is just obviously what we, sh- you know, a blueprint for how we should run our criminal justice system or how we should understand punishment philosophically. And it was interesting to me. I think that a lot of uh, Americans believe that, like they think that those are principles, especially this retributive principle that seems um, self-evident in Scripture, in Christian Scripture, um, that that's a good way to to think, or per, at least perhaps the Christian perspective. And what I learned in the writing of this book is that there's any number of ways of interpreting Scripture on these questions. There's, uh, you know, just to take one example, um, the uh, what are we to make of Romans 12? Like, right, but Romans 13 is sort of this classic a text about um, the role of the state um, in the Christian mind of what they are supposed to be doing, um, executing justice, and uh, it's often a passage that's used to defend policing practices or defend uh, a harsh, sometimes violent um, state presence in our society. by evangelicals and Christians of all types. Um, But when you go read Romans 12, right before it, it talks about doing good to those, doing good to your enemy, doing good to those um, who hurt you. And so how do we square these seemingly incongruent um, ways of of thinking about Christian obligations to those around us? Um, Or to use the eye for an eye example, if if you read uh, any number of Um, Jewish ruminations on those passages you realize like oh what this is actually talking about is limitations on violence like this isn't simply about vengeance Um, it's not about that at all it's about providing a clear sense of uh, how a society should respond proportionally to um, a violation that's occurred Um, so that if you
0: Take, take no more than an eye for an eye
1: right yeah so if like yeah you you cut off somebody's you know, finger in a, in a fight or something like that, they can't just kill you and your whole family. Like, you know, that that's not the the right way to do it. Like they, they may be able to, the state may be able to have some sort of proportionate response to that. That's comparable to that lost finger. Um, And all these kinds of debates, these theological exegetical debates were happening throughout the twentieth century as evangelicals were seeking influence in American politics and culture, but were having to think about what scripture might say um these contested scriptures uh might what they might have to say to um, a public that was sometimes skeptical, sometimes very sympathetic one one example of this that I love in the in the book um is in the beginning of my uh third chapter where there's a representative from the ACLU. I write about this this gentleman who's a representative from the ACLU and he is trying to put together a list of religious organizations that will stand against capital punishment. And it's tough to know exactly like looking at the correspondence and his, his own records, exactly what he's thinking here, but he reaches out to the national association of evangelicals. And this is like in the, um, you know, mid 20th century. And, and he doesn't, it seems that he doesn't really know a ton about evangelicals, but he thinks to himself, evangelicals are all about Jesus and love for neighbor and doing, you know, uh, good to those around us. Like that seems to be the Jesus way. And the possibility and, uh, of redemption. Yeah. The possibility of redemption. And that even if you know, you're know you not defined by your worst mistakes, and even if you've done something awful, like there's still the hope for you. Um, and this gentleman who's an ACLU representative who identifies as Jewish, he, com- he says later in the correspondence that he's Jewish. That's just his impression of like, oh, well, this is what Christian's would believe, I guess. Um, and he writes the National Association of Evangelicals to try to get them to join this anti death penalty cause. Um, and the NAE spokesperson, on the, or the person that's running this particular uh, issue, responds and he's like, No, we're not doing that because we believe that um, serious violations or any violation has to, uh, you know, th- there has to be some sort of punishment in order to make it right. That there has to be, um, you know, a sacrifice of some kind, and he uses this very like a, this kind of atonement language. Uh, there has to be a, some sort of sacrifice in order to make it okay. He even uses the phrase like, "God does not forgive sin without the appropriate penalty." Um, and the ACLU guys like, I do not understand this. Like, this is not what I thought Christians were all about and from there on it just sort of dissipates uh but to me that was a great example of just how um yeah these texts and traditions are up for grabs and um i think it's just interesting more generally how much the bible does say about matters of crime and punishment but that means that there's a lot there for people to to argue about
0: a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is that when you see Romans thirteen appealed to often in content, like I'll never forget seeing the then Attorney General of the United States in answer to a question about immigration policy, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, notably,
0: he's a person who's actually in a position to influence law enforcement, right? Yeah. And uh, in in answer to a normative question, should you be doing this? Right, because what's yeah. happening in Romans 13, Paul's giving practical like you could look at it as like practical advice, or at least it's mm-hmm. it, it has to do with the practice of people who are not in power, right? Yeah. Um yeah. and then it, but I see evangelicals do this all the time, right? Like uh people are asking questions about what the law should be, and they're like, Ah, just obey the law. And it's like, no, that's a totally mm. separate conversation. Like, what are you talking yeah. about?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, just even Paul's own biography, right? Like, this is a, a dude that spent a lot of time in prison for not (laughs) oh like not doing what he was supposed to be doing and um and so there's it's not as if he was an anarchist or something obviously like he's trying to convey something in romans 13 but to have it um you know as a historian like the ways that that passage were have been utilized not only in the 20th century on criminal justice but even in like you know, the antebellum period with regards to enslavement um, are just so striking. And I think that they show really just how Christians, um, th- th- it's such a, a a broad, abstract principle that it's easy to apply to wherever you want to execute power, right? And exactly. um, an example of this that I, I want to mention that's actually not in the book, but it, it's in an article I wrote, recently because i found this information after the book was published but um there are some evangelical bible translational um debates about how you even i should say just christian translational debates about how you even translate romans 13 with regards to uh you know political language of of soldier or executioner or, or what have you and i'm not a biblical scholar at all but one of the translational decisions that the living bible which is a a popular uh paraphrase that evangelicals read all the time in the 1970s and following um the living bible uses uh the term policeman in romans 13 like as the word for the stand-in uh um for language about like the the executioner or the the um the state official. And I thought this was so interesting. Like policeman is a word that's so contested in the 1970s and eighties. Like what are the powers of the police? Like how much should we be, how much power should we be giving them? Um, how much funding should they have, for example? Um, and it was clear here how these people who were doing this translation decided like, this just makes sense that this would be how we'd read this passage that it's talking about the police.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I appreciate what they're up to, right. Trying to mm-hmm. translate the concepts, but it's like, policeman is not, I mean, that's what, like a 19th century invention, right? Yeah. Like yeah. A, a professional police force. Yeah.
1: yeah. 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 And I mean, I mean, I think there's some interesting questions about, you know, like, what a Roman soldier or whatever, like what would the comparable entity today look like? But simply to jump to that move of saying like, well, this is logically, not only this is logically what this must have meant or means for us today, but then when you go read various commentary from evangelicals on the passage, then it becomes clear that what they think it means is the police should have tons of power. (laughs) Their power is given to them by God so do not disobey and do not defund them and uh you know we should not question then um their their presence in our in our contemporary
0: life right so one so there's a passage in the book that brings together two uh, the sort of two threads that we've been touching on here uh one being um the severity of sort of law enforcement um uh, and the other being the way in which folks, I mean, we're, we're talking in this context, of course, about white evangelicals, but um, we might say, you know, different groups at different times in different ways have a tendency to take some sort of abstract abstract biblical principles and then um, apply them in ways that are radically inconsistent. <laughs> um, mm. So on page 136, yeah. you note your... your um, recounting a story about a committed Southern Baptist who is in uh, Congress, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 So one thing he did and he, he inserts a letter. He introduces a letter into the, I'm quoting here, into the congressional record. That's a title. So it's italicized uh, from a concerned citizen. That was a classic articulation of Christian law and order tropes. Jesus might forgive crimes, But the state had a divine responsibility to deal harshly with lawbreakers. And you see this rhetoric used um, uh, to make exactly the opposite point when it comes to questions of restitution right now. Right. It's like, well, no, Jesus has forgiven us for all this. So we don't have to, you know, that is to say restitution for past injustice.
1: Right. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Like,
1: yeah. aside. Yeah, I I wrestle with this all the time after reading Kristen Dume's book Jesus and John Wayne and then reading like uh not only uh, other historians and and scholars reflecting on evangelicals and like sexual abuse crises uh that are just everywhere um right now um but also yeah these questions of obligations to of christians for past wrongs committed whether that's racism enslavement um sexual abuse and how forgiveness becomes weaponized right this this sense of god's grace covering over sins uh means that people in power do not have to account for their actions or um even leave power (laughs) um and i think this is this is something I really wrestled with in the book because I take in the second chapter of the book who I look at Billy Graham and David Wilkerson, these two like very uh, you know famous evangelists of in the fifties and sixties. And I actually try to show how that sentiment was there in their early ministry. And they were talking a lot about delinquency and crime and Billy Graham and David Wilkerson say things before the 1960s, sort of civil rights protest and urban uprisings really get rolling in the in the 50s early 60s wilkerson and graham say things like it doesn't matter what kind of crime you've committed it doesn't matter what you've done god forgives you and they don't talk about police like they don't talk about uh getting tough on crime really it's they, they talk about crime. They're worried about crime. They're worried about lawbreaking, especially gangs and juvenile delinquents. Um, but their answer is this, the grace of God and this sense of like forgiveness. And it's interesting because there's there's one part in the book where I write about like this uh, liberal Protestant journalist goes to a Billy Graham crusade. And he talks about how uncomfortable he felt, all this grace and forgiveness language Um, how there was no sense of like ethics or accountability in that. And it was interesting to see it flipped a little bit from what you might expect in in the mid 20th century. Like here, the evangelicals are the ones talking about crime in a way that is uh, is so focused on this radical act of forgiveness and possibility. And they're not interested in locking people up. But what changes then is in the midst of um, the 60s, crime uh, starts becoming much more like racialized and the problems of urban uprisings change Billy Graham's mind. Um, So by the time the Watts uh, uprising happens in 1965, Graham is not talking like this anymore. Um, He's looking out in the streets and seeing civil rights protests and seeing uh, rebellions in predominantly black neighborhoods. And then he says, we need to crack down. We need tough new laws to deal with lawbreaking. He still wants lawbreakers to accept Jesus and to um, be forgiven, but the state's the state has an obligation now to punish. And I think this just shows how these flexible notions of conversion, of grace, of forgiveness are so they're so influenced by one's racial consciousness, one's sense of uh power and hierarchies and roles whether it's gender whether it's race what have you um to the point that yeah now we have you know law and order style rhetoric coming from some leaders at the same time they're saying you know you got to forgive like we can't do anything about that that's the past is past like uh we just need to let bygones be bygones and it's like well those are very different kinds of claims so what is at stake in each and i think you find um Often, what's at stake are uh, white men trying to <laughs> stay in power. <laughs> um,
0: so, if you if you see law and order <clears throat> as a claim about social hierarchy, right, then it makes perfect sense. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I and now, I think that's how you get at the ideology. Is it's like what would I have to believe in order for all this stuff to make sense? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I I, I don't...
1: Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, I I tried to say in the book that the impulse of Graham and Wilkerson and other mid-20th century white evangelicals is actually, like, uh, there are moral possibilities there. Like, there's moral and theological possibilities there that open the door for intense sympathy i would even maybe say solidarity with those whose lives are uh, are in shambles (laughs) Um, not just people who've just sinned in the abstract but people who've done um, who've committed serious uh, violations and i think that this actually is why it's that same impulse that drives actually like evangelical criminal justice reformers today. Um, And I I write about them in my final chapter, but I think they are drawing from that same impulse that you are not defined by your worst mistakes, that God loves you no matter what has happened and that uh, forgiveness is possible. Um, Of course, the details all become of like what that actually means policy-wise and then how we build reform or justice movements from that uh you know that's an open question but i actually think that there's a lot of um evangelicals have resources within that impulse as long as it's not one that becomes simply about protecting uh wrongdoers and protecting evangelicals themselves from being accused of of stuff they've done
0: so, so maybe so I, I, this is probably me being a philosopher trying to like oversimplify history so so you know please let's let's go for l- it let me know uh, I was but, a
1: philosophy what, I majored in philosophy as an undergrad, so i'm all i'm I'm all for this so yeah
0: <laughs> all right well then you're the you're the perfect historian then to explain to me where I'm wrong because you can you know, <laughs> connect with yeah so um perhaps where that um initial impulse like mid century right perhaps uh the way that that ends up getting dissipated in certain circles is the civil rights movement right oh, yeah and so and so so that so the, okay okay so i'm not i'm not over okay um because it's like yeah we're um uh yeah talk about that then right
1: yeah <laughs> the oh i mean i think that that's that's exactly yeah like they're the i try to show how in the mid 1960s is where all of it changes and the, the civil rights movement and concerns about unrest um, associated with civil rights protest uh, is on the minds of white evangelical leaders and their sympathies, even though many of them are not uh, like, like Billy Graham, you know, they may have been segregationists like earlier in their life and they now are, are, speaking in tones that are much more sympathetic to desegregation. They are still very guarded, if not um, occasionally uh, hostile, certainly critical of the civil rights movement and its aims. And so anytime then when when civil rights protests appears to be um, unruly or rebellious, or cutting against the laws um, of the land in ways that are threatening the social order, white evangelicals change their tune and they become much more open to law and order sloganeering and policy, which is what Richard Nixon totally gets, um, which is what Ronald Reagan, when he runs for governor in California totally gets that white evangelicals and not only white evangelicals, right? All kinds of, of, americans but especially evangelicals are very sympathetic to this um colorblind uh yet punitive mode of 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 thinking i don't think it's just that like i i try to show in the book that there are all these other changes happening as well so in the mid-60s evangelical uh Evangelicals are also like really mad at the Warren uh, court, the Earl oh, Warren sure. Supreme Court for a ton of different reasons like on school prayer, uh issues, but the Warren court is also coming down with these criminal procedure rulings like Miranda v. Arizona, um Matt v. Ohio and those seemingly are granting more rights to criminals. And uh, it all sort of starts working together, whether it's school prayer, whether it's concerns about um, integration, whether it's law and order issues into this broader, I think really like the key defining impulse for just evangelical public life um, from here on out that lays the foundation for what we would see today as like, you know, the religious right. Um, And it's, it's not, Uh, as if I think most evangelicals had in their minds like clear positions on these issues, but it was a sense beginning in the sixties that we're supposed to be politically engaged. We, our faith has something to say about these social problems. Um, It's not just about individual conversion. Remember that's what Wilkerson and Graham had said in the forties and fifties. It is about individual conversion. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can come to Jesus, but if you pivot to this political consciousness, then that um, means you are going to have much more confidence in the power of the state to solve your problems, um, and that's, you know, not only problems of, uh, issues of you know on on you know prayer in schools or whatever, but problems of crime. Um, so I try to show how, I use. Christianity Today, the magazine, is an example of this, like this move towards evangelical, intellectual and public engagement um, means that they have to start taking politics more seriously. And if you're going to talk about politics, you have to talk about the state's capacity for violence, which is um, what the criminal justice system is all about.
0: Right. Uh, Right. And so uh, what all of this contributes to is is upsetting uh, upsetting the hierarchy. Hmm. That that had existed, right? And I and I wonder if so. I, one case that I found um, uh, interesting that you discuss is I'm gonna I'm gonna look. Got his name here. Um, it's the pastor who was. There's a picture of him speaking at a Billy Graham crusade, but he's a, he's he's theologically conservative but politically liberal. And that, Mm. and he ends up in this kind of no man's land,
1: right? Oh yeah, Tom Skinner, Tom Skinner. Yes, that's it.
0: So, yeah, Yeah. so, so so, so I, I, the reason I was talking about that is this, um, I, of course, I mean, say whatever you want, but um, I, as I, like in young adulthood started to come to certain realizations about like how the world actually is, having grown up in like conservative uh, evangelical circles, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it was actually reading scripture and understanding that uh, much of the Hebrew scripture is, is informed by God's concern for justice. Right. And, and, and that was how I actually came to hold, I think what would be regarded as more politically progressive views. And so I regard myself as theologically conservative and politically. uh, Yeah. Like I say, more progressive. And I I struggled for a long time with like, okay, why is it, why is it that theological conservatives are are their they state their positions as being explicitly about theology, but then the moment you sort of take a different position politically, all of a sudden you're outside the camp. And it sort yeah. of seems like they've incorporated th- these political positions like into their theology, even though it's not always explicitly stated. So, like what's going on there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, so I, I'll talk about Tom Skinner in a second because I think he provides a good example of this. But I think in some ways, like this is actually just a profoundly, like this is just a human impulse that like we are, we are always finding ways, no matter what your religious tradition or or philosophical commitments are, like we are inconsistent and always trying to, uh, there's an impulse within us to appear A certain way uh, to maintain as much power as we can. And um, we can override moral commitments that perhaps we were taught or that we were trained in, or that seem maybe in our best days to be true, um, because we can justify them in all kinds of ways. I think this is just people do this. Um, Yeah. And I mean, Christians would say that, well, that's, this is sin is what it is. Like, that's like, that's just the the theological term for it. Um, But I think, though, that evangelicals are particularly good at this um, and because there is a Bible, because as we mentioned earlier, like there's a Bible reference for everything. And so it instantly becomes very easy to find whatever uh, issue of the day that you want to stake out a particular, particular claim on to justify your team. Um, you can go to that. And this is, again, this is not just for evangelicals. Like this is just a problem in the Christian tradition more generally of how Christians should reason with one another, um, over scripture. And when is it actually in line with scripture itself, the Christian tradition? Um, and when is it just, uh, our own desires, um, and selfish wants coming through but i think evangelicals are really probably the best historically at simply saying this is what the bible says on this and then that becomes a a wedge or a a blunt instrument to then hammer home and it becomes very easily adapted and adopted by politicians who want to use like very simplistic um you know renderings of, of, of issues or want to appeal to, to people in, in ways that um, I think divides and uh, promotes policies that are, that can be really harmful. Um, Now, but, but Tom Skinner is a good example of how all this works because Skinner. So I write extensively, extensively about Tom Skinner in the book. He is an African-American evangelical and he calls himself an evangelical he writes for evangelical presses he goes aligns himself with all the evangelical you know publishing houses organizations um he his own story though is growing up in um uh, new york and he was a he joined a gang as like a, a a teen and he has this you know sort of violent gang history of of doing all this stuff with his gang and then being converted, coming to Christ in a very dramatic way and leaving all of that behind. And he talks, this is his own testimony. And it's, you know, it's, I think a very streamlined testimony. It, it It's one that gets published and picked up in ev- the evangelical press all over the place, but it's one that, uh, that for, for Skinner is very powerful and it's very powerful to a lot of white evangelicals who hear him and who read him. When you read Skinner in the in his early career, um, in the fifties, late 50s, early 60s, um, I'm trying to remember the exact years, I believe early 60s, he sounds like Billy Graham. Um, it sounds very similar to just this, you know, Jesus is the answer, whatever the problem, uh, we need to stop talking as much about politics and just focus on the gospel. Over the course of the 60s, as all those Events that I mentioned earlier, the civil rights movement um, urban unrest uh, uh, Vietnam are all like in play, whereas white evangelicals it drives them to the Republican party it drives them to uh stake this more conservative outlook on uh, in, in politics for Skinner it takes him the other way, and part of that is um just his reading of the Bible. Like when he looks in the Bible, like issues of justice seem to him to be so clear and obvious that this is what uh, scripture is concerned with and this is what Christians should be concerned with. But it's also his experience as a Black man in white evangelical circles that pushes him this way. And he starts to realize, like, oh, I, uh, my experiences my reading is different and um i'm my theology hasn't changed (laughs) but my own sense of the world pushes me in a different uh direction because for me the police aren't have never been my friend the police have always looked at someone like me and um seen me as criminal he says In 1970, at an InterVarsity gathering, he says, like, the police are an occupational force for Black Americans. They are not the friendly neighborhood policemen. They are an occupational force for the interests of white society. And when you say things like that in 1970, and you want to call yourself an evangelical, it's going to make people nervous. And soon after that, um, as Skinner becomes much more progressive on issues of race, as he's much more focused on um, critiquing people like Richard Nixon, evangelicals find ways to, to push him out and to cancel his radio broadcasts and to keep him from speaking at all the, the big fancy evangelical events. And they, his theology doesn't really change, I don't think, but it's that different outlook informed by his own experience, um, that, that really, yeah, uh, allows evangelicals to say, well, this is a, you know, this is a biblical issue, but for Skinner, it never stopped being, it never stopped being one.
0: So they, yeah, it's like, but it, it's sort of mostly innuendo, right? Cause it's like, well, if, even though his theology hasn't explicitly changed, right yeah uh we have no evidence that his theology has changed the fact that he's taking this opposite position on these you know social issues or political issues um what i mean like he must be a marxist or something (laughs) so deep down yeah
1: i'm yeah and i think even like evangelical leaders like clyde taylor who's director of the national association of evangelicals um says something and I believe in like 1972, one or two, he doesn't even say that Skinner's wrong theologically. He just says like, Skinner's just a little, he says in the New York times, um, Skinner's like a little too pepped up on race or on a little too excited about race issues. And that's just not where we want to go. Um So it, even then it, I think Clyde Taylor and the NAE realize this isn't about theology. This is about maintaining appearances with um, book people who buy evangelical books, people who support evangelical radio programs, um, churches who want to be a part of the NAE, and uh, so they drop him from all of these um, evangelical media platforms. And it uh, and that really, I think, helps consolidate. What evangelical as this white Christian movement um, from then on? Um, He's Skinner's not the only one, but yeah, yeah.
0: So yeah, so that so the the thing that Clyde Taylor said, right? That's that uh fascinates me for um a couple of uh, reasons. So I recently had a conversation with Jesse, he's at valparaiso he's in historian, I forget his last name. Yeah, Jesse Curtis, yeah. Exactly, Jesse Curtis, right? And so um we talked about how the notion of, uh, race neutrality started out as, um, you know, look, if you're in the 1950s, right. You would welcome race neutrality, like race neutral policies. Right. Right. But then that, that rhetoric is sort of reappropriated, um, to suggest that like, uh, well, you know, colorblind, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, we don't need to do anything to account for, um, obvious, you know, inequalities, et cetera, uh, but, you know, based on injustices, um, and a similar thing happens with law and order because initially law and order is this argument yeah. that, uh, sort of more politically progressive evangelicals use against, they say that, uh, you know, the real problem with lynching is that it's, in a, it's, it's chaos, right? It's not, we need law and order, right? right? And then the, the exact same thing happens with that rhetoric.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for, uh, Jesse's book that's coming out. And I think, um, I think it's going to be a really helpful exploration into how this, this language of neutrality really seeps into both evangelical and just American culture, um, at mid century. And to the point that we're still like wrestling with what this means even today, where, um, where race shapes so much of our society, um, where racial injustice is so present, but yet nobody is a racist seemingly. (laughs) Right. Like, um, but, but no one would uh, call themselves that, or at least most people wouldn't. And, um, and I, I think that that's, you know, this to, to our earlier conversation about how just language is used in ways, whether it's the term like biblical or yeah, this, this phrase law and order um, used in different ways in different contexts. So let's then look at the underlying structural or just what is trying to be accomplished. Like, yeah, for early 20th century um, Protestants, like African-American Christians, even um, law and order could be a good thing because it meant that lynch mobs weren't able to just terrorize people uh, terrorize, um, black citizens with impunity, like law and order was a way to <laughs> push back to regulate that kind of, um, chaotic mob violence, but that law and order impulse, uh, that focused then on policing as a professionalized, uh, state apparatus that then can be controlled and, and, and used in ways to promote justice that's then easily appropriated from the 1950s and sixties on of, you know, now law and order is about seemingly the same kind of thing, protecting society from chaos, protecting from against mob violence. But now the chaos and the mobs um, I put those in quotes are uh, civil rights protesters and um. African-Americans who are rebelling against uh, injustices in their neighborhoods, whether it's police brutality, the actual thing, you know, that um, the entity that's supposed to be protecting them.
0: So is there anything I, that uh, I neglected to ask you that, you know, would have been interesting to talk about anything uh, you want to add?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the one topic we didn't really get to is just, I'd love to talk a little bit about prison ministry, if that's all right. Um,
0: oh yeah, please.
1: Yeah. So I, I started the book thinking I was going to write about, mainly about evangelicals involved in prison ministry. Um, so evangelicals going into prisons and evangelizing and, Providing pastoral care to incarcerated people. And I started thinking that was going to be the focus, and then realized, oh, there's this whole other story to tell with regards to politics and public conceptions of crime and delinquency and reform efforts. But I think, in some ways, like the heart of the book for me is this impulse of many evangelicals in the midst of these punitive cultural currents in the midst of law and order politicking um retributive theological sentiment uh there's the impulse of many evangelicals to simply just go into spaces of confinement and try to uh share the love of jesus to people and what i try to show in the book is how those are all related um and sometimes they are i think in Prison ministry is unfortunately narrated as somehow separate from those other currents, like the law and order currents that they're detached or perhaps even uh, the opposite of. What I try to show is that this is all part of a larger history of evangelical concern about Crime and disorder, but I think for a lot of uh, for a lot of Christians, prison ministry, especially in the mid '70s and and after, with people like Chuck Colson, um, provided a space for not only sharing the gospel to people who had been arrested, uh, who had been confined, but it provided a space for evangelicals themselves to possibly be transformed um, to go into prisons and to see personally, oh. This is what it's like. This is the uh, the conditions that people are living in. And they start to get to know people who are incarcerated. They start to realize that like, these are people just like me. These are people just like my kids. Uh, these are people who have very... Not only human, are uh, not only completely human, in all that that complexity, but many of them are also Christians. They are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think it's that encounter that provides ev- some evangelicals um, a new lens and also a, a, a possibility, the possibility for change of thinking about criminal justice and Christian obligations to. Uh, those who are caught up in the criminal justice system, and and I think that this actually for Chuck Colson, but for for others as well, it's that personal encounter, that personal experience in prisons that gives them new lenses for reading scripture, for seeing not just Romans thirteen, not just eye for an eye, but seeing uh, Paul's own experience in prison, or. Jesus's presence with criminals, even in his death, right? That he is, um, that the Christian community around him, uh, the first Christian community, as Karl Barth says, were these two criminals hanging next to him. And uh, I, I think that this, it's that encounter within prisons that offers some, not all, but some evangelicals, a new way for understanding uh, understanding the system that they've for so long that their tradition had had supported
0: well thank you so much aaron for taking the time to talk it's been a fascinating conversation i really appreciate um your work in the book the book is god's law and order that's with harvard university press highly recommend
1: thank you thanks so much scott this has been just really wonderful i appreciate your questions and reading and uh yeah thanks for the conversation.
0: Well, um, one, one thing that always impresses me about, uh, folks and, and I've gotten this sense with you, Dume, Barr and, and Jesse, um, you all are, you all have been, are very patient with me (laughs) because, because it, because I'm, I'm, I've got, you know, I'm trying to connect all this, you know, I'm doing the abstract (laughs) type type stuff or whatever. And y'all are like, okay, well, actually the world is more complicated than that. Um, (laughs) well i i'm very
1: i'm very sympathetic to it because i'm the kind of person that i never say this when i go on podcasts or i'm interviewed but i like i don't know i feel like i i i process things verbally and i'm thinking through the way i make abstract things concrete is by speaking them Mm. (laughs) or talking through them and so i appreciate your patience with me um just yeah, chattering on and on and on about this stuff. So I'm, I'm so grateful for, yeah, for the questions, but also for your engagement on, on Twitter and just uh, the ways that you're thinking through lots of related issues and in public. So, yeah.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: All right. Awesome. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks again. Yeah. Have a good one. All
1: right. You too.